The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. I don't know, said the commander. This is Thursday, November 16th, 2017. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through my links for Target.com, my other sponsors, and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Well, now the Senate's out with its own tax plan, and unlike the House version, this one wipes out tax breaks for middle-class families. It also strikes a devastating blow to Obamacare. Still, the Senate's tax bill might also not set well with Trump because it delays his coveted corporate tax breaks. Breaks for corporations would be permanent, by the way, while tax breaks for individuals would vanish in a few years. With different ideas from the House, the Senate, and the White House, Republican efforts to make big changes in the nation's tax laws may already be doomed, just like their effort to repeal Obamacare. And now the tax bill even takes another run at the Affordable Care Act, eliminating the individual mandate, the requirement that every American buy health insurance to make health insurance more affordable to low-income workers and to people with pre-existing conditions. The repeal was tacked on behind closed doors, and it means 13 million people will no longer be able to afford health insurance. Trump insisted on that change. But Senate leaders also added this repeal to make their tax bill more attractive to senators who had also promised repeal but are less excited about the proposed tax changes. Republicans like Susan Collins of Maine aren't so sure. Rather than repealing the mandate, she and others prefer the bipartisan compromise plan to fix Obamacare. The Republican plan prompted Democrats to dig in their heels even further in their opposition to both the tax bill and the mandate repeal. But the Senate Republican plan is still being hammered out in committee and still has to be reconciled with the House plan, which does not include that repeal, along with other major differences. And the chances for passage in the Senate have dimmed considerably. Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin says he's against both the House and Senate tax plans, and the plans alienated other Republicans in the Senate, including Susan Collins. The House plan, like the first Obamacare repeal, is expected to pass when it comes up for a vote today. But Senate Republicans may once again be short on votes despite their majority. Almost a year into this all-Republican government, not one significant piece of legislation has been signed into law and no promises have been fulfilled. The Republican House and the Republican Senate are now trying to work out their differences on a tax bill and still keep the cost of these tax breaks to $1.5 trillion. That could take weeks, with only six weeks left in the year, not counting holidays. Trump at this point may sign anything, just so he can. With the holidays approaching quickly, so does the deadline for that one first accomplishment. The rush to enroll in Obamacare for 2018 continued beyond just that first record-setting day reported here last week. In the first four days of open enrollment, 600,000 people signed up, many of them renewing, but 25% of them first-timers. Enrollment has been running double the pace of last year's. The reasons? A shorter sign-up period for one. It's been cut in half, ending six weeks earlier than it had before. Another reason? The public has now seen the Republican plans to repeal and replace Obamacare, driving up the Affordable Care Act standing in the polls. There was a rush on marketplace policies last year after Trump was elected, but this year's rush is bigger. Is Obamacare imploding, as Trump had claimed, or is it exploding? 
U.S. citizens have never shared as much debt as they do now. Household debt now totals $13 trillion and continues to grow as Americans struggle to pay off loans on their homes, cars, college, and more. And $13 trillion is an all-time record. It's nearly $300 billion higher than it was in 2008. It's increased by more than 16% just in the past four years. The upside? We're apparently managing this record debt. For now, foreclosures are at an all-time low. Although there is no paper trail to support this, at least a dozen people say that in the 1980s, Roy Moore was on the list of people banned from the mall in Gadsden, Alabama. Those dozen sources, including a top Alabama political figure, say Moore had been banned because he had repeatedly used that venue to meet and harass teenage girls. A local journalist reports that Moore had also been banned from the YMCA for the same reason. Moore was in his early 30s at the time, and he was the local district attorney. That mall opened in 74. By 1980, according to a deputy in the DA's office, it was common knowledge that Moore dated high school girls. Especially in those days, the mall was where teenage girls could be found. The managers of several stores and the movie theater say they heard repeated complaints from girls about Moore's harassment in the days before he was banned, hanging out alone at the mall on Friday and Saturday nights, wearing nice slacks and button-down shirts. The Gadsden Mall is where Roy Moore met at least two of the five women now accusing him of sexual assault, including a Santa's helper who was 14 years old when Moore introduced himself to her. But it was outside the Etowah County Courthouse where he worked that Moore would meet a 14-year-old girl sitting on a bench with her mother. There is a paper trail to support this. Court records show that both Moore and the girl's mother were at the courthouse that day. He introduced himself and then offered to watch the girl while her mother went inside the courthouse for a custody hearing. The girl's mother thought it was a very nice thing for Moore to offer and took him up on it. It was during Moore's alone time with young Lee Korfman that he got her telephone number. A few days later, she says he picked her up around the corner from her house and drove about a half hour into a wooded area. It was there, she says, he told her how pretty she was and kissed her. On the second rendezvous, she says he removed her shirt and pants as well as his own and began to touch her through her underwear and compelled her to do the same to him. He was aroused, she says, and she pulled her hand away. I want it out, she says, so she asked him to take her home, and he did. The girl told several people about this at the time and told her mother ten years later as Moore's political career began to really take off. In other words, there are multiple people to corroborate the woman's story, and Lee Korfman's story has been precisely consistent in six separate interviews. Most of the women say Moore pursued them when they were teenagers. At least one mother even encouraged her daughter to date Moore, calling her daughter the luckiest girl in the world. Now, adult women, they say Moore's advances were flattering at first, but in later years just seemed creepy. And all the women have people to back up their stories. The Washington Post says it found more than 30 supporting witnesses just for the first four accusers, 30 people who knew Moore in the late 70s and 1980s. Sexual touching of a 12- to 15-year-old by someone 19 or over qualifies as second-degree sexual abuse in Alabama, punishable by a year in jail. If the touching is to try to entice the minor to engage in intercourse, it's a felony, punishable by 10 years in prison. None of the women say they had sex with Moore or that he forced them to perform explicitly sexual acts, mostly just hugging and kissing and touching. 
Moore denies all of this and is now fighting back, saying his accusers are lying, claiming one of them forged his signature in her high school yearbook. His staunchest supporters believe him and believe all of this is fake news from a liberal media. It was Moore, after all, who'd ignored orders to remove a plaque he'd made of the Ten Commandments in a deeply religious part of the country. After military school in Vietnam, law school, a stint of kickboxing, and some cattle wrangling, Moore returned to Alabama politics, becoming a circuit court judge. And he believed those commandments would have prevented the criminal cases he was hearing if the perpetrators could have seen them earlier in their lives. He had carved them in redwood and posted the plaque despite separation of church and state. Once elected to the Alabama Supreme Court, Moore had a 5,000-pound granite version of the commandments placed in the building and, again defying court orders, refused to remove it, which is why he was removed from the bench in 2003. But a majority of Alabama voters saw Moore as a hero, a brave Christian who would stand up for their values. Feds be damned. So Moore got re-elected to the state Supreme Court in 2012 and was removed from the bench again when he defied a federal court order by ordering state judges not to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. When Lee Korfman, who met Moore when she was 14, saw years later a report about the Ten Commandments judge on Good Morning America, she says she threw up. But Roy Moore is still popular among many, maybe most, Alabama voters, which is why he's still running to be one of Alabama's United States senators. Republicans in the Senate need that Senate seat to remain Republican if they hope to pursue the agenda they share with Trump. They need that Republican vote from the Senate seat once occupied by Jeff Sessions. And even with Moore tied with his Democratic opponent, Doug Jones, in that Senate race, and sometimes leading Jones, the Republican leadership in Washington has decided they might need someone other than Roy Moore. The process of ditching Judge Moore started as far back as last Friday when the Senate Republican fundraising group cut off the money it was providing for Moore's campaign and made that official by notifying the Federal Election Committee. The leader of all Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, wasn't leading. He was waiting and watching. Although many Republican senators had already dropped their support of Moore, McConnell was still pondering options at first. But by Monday, McConnell was also ready to wash his hands of the guy, McConnell saying he believed the women and that Roy Moore should drop out of the race. After an even longer delay, the Republican leader of the House grabbed hold of the rear bumper and also said Moore should withdraw from the race. He and McConnell don't want to be the leaders of what might become known as the pedophile party in next year's congressional election campaigns. Judge Moore says McConnell is the one who should step aside to drain the swamp, and Moore says he'll sue the Washington Post over this fake news. But McConnell and the White House have a backup plan. Run Jeff Sessions as a write-in candidate to run against Moore and the Democrat for Sessions' old Senate seat. For the White House, that has the advantage of removing an attorney general who's recused himself from the Russia investigation with one who's not recused. Sessions reportedly would like to keep the job he has. And then a fifth woman came forward on that same day. Like the other women accusers, Beverly Young Nelson has bravely given her name and has corroborators. Unlike the other women, she did it in front of news cameras. Ms. Nelson says she has no intention of filing either a lawsuit or criminal charges. She says she just wanted people to know who they might be electing and that what the other women had said is true. 
And, said Nelson, he began squeezing my neck, attempting to force my head onto his crotch. Nelson says Moore told her, You are a child. I am the district attorney of Etowah County. And he told her that if she reported this, quote, no one will believe you. She was 15 when he met her. Last night, four more women came forward. One who was approached by Moore when she was 22. The other was yet another teenager, bringing the total number of accusers to nine. So far. And now the Republican National Committee has finally pulled the funding and its people out of the Moore campaign. But Roy Moore still has the support of the Alabama State Republican Party, and he remains in the race. The testimony weighs heavily against him, but he's still supported by voters who see him as the brave Christian fighting for their values. And he could still win. With the election less than a month away, it's too late to remove Moore from the ballot, but Republicans in Congress have abandoned him and promised to expel him if he's elected. With a dozen Republicans ready to expel, along with all of the Democrats, Moore likely won't be in Washington more than a day. Moore would become the first senator to be expelled since the end of the Civil War 155 years ago. And that would escalate the Civil War that's already underway within the Republican Party. And if Moore is expelled, Trump and the Republican congressional leaders hope that Alabama's governor will appoint someone to take Moore's place. And they hope that someone will be Jeff Sessions, the attorney general who's recused from the Russia investigation. Sessions is increasingly in a corner. The one thing he could do to save his job is the one thing he says he has not yet decided to do. Sessions has been under tremendous pressure from Trump and Trump supporters in Congress to investigate Hillary Clinton again, this time mainly, but not exclusively, about the sale of a uranium mine to a Russian company. Trump has repeatedly prodded Sessions to investigate Clinton. Lawmakers asked for this investigation months ago. On Monday, Sessions directed senior federal prosecutors to see if there's enough evidence to justify such a probe. In Sessions' testimony before the House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday, he was asked why he still hadn't begun that investigation. One Republican on the committee said it, quote, looks like a Clinton special counsel should be appointed. Looks like, replied Sessions, is not enough to appoint a special counsel. Pushing back against his fellow Republicans, Sessions insisted the Justice Department would not be swayed by politics, but would instead adhere to the law and to the department's own traditions. Sessions also pushed back against Democrats, asking about his previous testimony that was proven incorrect and dishonest about Trump campaign contacts with Russians. Sessions took the Democrats on a walk down no memory lane, repeatedly claiming he didn't recall in one question after another. But to Republicans, Sessions insisted there is not at this point enough evidence to justify an investigation of Clinton and or that uranium deal. Trump has made it clear he wants one. Trump's made it clear he wants to investigate his defeated political rival at taxpayer expense, which prior to this has only happened in banana republics. Trump's campaign rallies frequently included a crowd chant of lock her up. During the campaign, Trump promised to prosecute Clinton and said he would instruct his attorney general to do just that. In testimony Tuesday, Sessions said he would not allow the Justice Department to be used for political revenge. It's understandable that Trump and Trump supporters would welcome a new Clinton investigation. We'll start with the new revelation that Donald Trump Jr. was in touch with WikiLeaks during the campaign before and after WikiLeaks released Clinton's stolen emails. 
U.S. intelligence believes WikiLeaks was given those emails by Russian hackers. In late October last year, WikiLeaks sent a private Twitter message to Trump's oldest son providing the password to an anti-Trump website. Trump Jr. wrote back, off the record, I don't know who that is, but I'll ask around. Thanks. And there's evidence he did just that and told others about that first contact from WikiLeaks, including Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway, and Jared Kushner, who forwarded it to communications staffer Hope Hicks. The back and forth between the candidate's son and WikiLeaks continued through July of this year and perhaps beyond. In a mostly one-sided conversation, so far as we know, WikiLeaks pushed Trump Jr. to get Dad to make Australia appoint its founder, Julian Assange, as Australia's ambassador to the U.S. WikiLeaks also suggested that if Trump lost, he should refuse to concede defeat and claim the election had been rigged. Mostly, Don Jr. seemed to ignore these WikiLeaks messages, but on October 16th, he tweeted a link WikiLeaks had sent him, adding, All the corruption and hypocrisy are all right here. Jr.'s lawyers have now turned over these messages to congressional investigators. The day before WikiLeaks dropped the Clinton emails, a Tuesday, Trump advisor Roger Stone tweeted, quote, Wednesday, Hillary Clinton is done. Hashtag WikiLeaks. And on Wednesday, just as Stone had magically foretold, WikiLeaks dropped those emails, throwing the Democrats into last-minute chaos. And the emails were released less than an hour after the release of a video that had recorded Trump bragging about grabbing women by the genitals. Fifteen minutes after the emails were published, Trump was already asking why the media wasn't on that story and giving credit to WikiLeaks. We also learned a bit more this past week about the five Russian hookers. The Steele dossier says entertained citizen Trump when he was hosting a Miss Universe pageant in Moscow four years ago. We've just learned from congressional testimony that former British spy Christopher Steele gathered his information through sources that were not paid. That people were not paid to talk to Steele goes a long way to support the dossier's credibility. This testimony comes from the CEO of the company that hired Steele to assemble that dossier. And we now know that there was at least an offer of five women and that the offer was passed along to Trump himself by Trump's longtime bodyguard, Keith Schiller. Schiller had heard the offer around the lunch hour, he says, but doesn't remember who made it. Schiller, who may know more about Trump than anyone, including his wives, told Trump that he had turned down those hookers and that they'd both laughed, thinking it must have been a joke. Schiller hung around for a few minutes after delivering Trump back to his room, and then Schiller called it a night. There is not yet any way of knowing what happened after that, beyond the salacious details in the Steele dossier. The dossier claims Russia was determined to get blackmail dirt on Trump that it could use as leverage against him should he decide to run for president again. The Russians reportedly have video of the alleged depravity that involved the Russian hookers and Donald Trump. Bodyguard Schiller, also in his testimony, denied knowing anything about the firing of James Comey beyond being called in to deliver the termination letter to the FBI while Comey was out of town. And then there's the alleged kidnapping plot pursued by Trump's former national security advisor, Mike Flynn. The Wall Street Journal reports that special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating Flynn's role in a scheme to grab a Muslim cleric living in Pennsylvania and ship him to Turkey, where that country's vengeful president views the cleric as a political enemy. 
Flynn and his son Mike Jr. were to have been paid up to $15 million for delivering that cleric. The plot was reportedly hatched in a meeting last December at New York's 21 Club. The allegation means Flynn faces yet another investigation over his job as an agent for the government of Turkey, a job Flynn didn't report until after he had already been fired as Trump's national security advisor. And the Mueller investigation has now started probing not just the Trump campaign, but the Trump White House. The Mueller investigations now reached into Trump's inner circle with the interviewing of senior policy advisor Stephen Miller. Miller was asked, among other things, about the firing of James Comey as Mueller continues to investigate whether Trump's committed obstruction of justice. Reports say Mueller's office is also interested in talking to the others who attended a meeting in March of last year at which foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos announced he could set up a meeting between Trump and Putin. We now know of more than three dozen interactions between members of the Trump campaign and Russian agents. A Washington Post analysis shows there were nearly two dozen face-to-face meetings among those contacts. The meetings involved seven Trump campaign officials having such contact from February 2016 through Election Day. And we have also learned this week that Russian agents using American-sounding handles worked to deflect scandalous news about Trump in those final weeks leading up to the election. Their mission was to shift the topic to Clinton's campaign and the mainstream media. They were especially busy on October 7th, deflecting the news of that Access Hollywood tape that had Trump bragging about assaulting women. This, according to an analysis by the Associated Press, which studied the tweets we now know to be the work of Russian trolls. The analysis shows another spike in Russian trolling on the day Trump backed off his complaints Obama was born in Kenya, on the day before the first release of stolen emails, and again on Election Day itself. So, yes, it's been another explosive week in the Trump-Russia investigation, but Trump and the Republicans are now pushing for a new investigation of Hillary Clinton, who currently holds no public office. As he began his 12-day tour of Asia, Donald Trump, as expected, ran into Vladimir Putin at an Asian trade meeting in Vietnam. Trump says he again asked Putin if Russia had meddled in the election and that Putin had once again told him it had not. But then Trump did what once would have been considered unthinkable. Trump told reporters afterward, he said he absolutely didn't meddle in our election. Every time he sees me, he says, I didn't do that. And I really believe that when he tells me that, he means it. Trump added, I think he's very insulted by it, which is not a good thing for our country. Trump told reporters it's time to move on from that issue. But Trump had also attacked the men who once ran the CIA, the FBI, and the National Intelligence Agency, And this did not set well with Senator John McCain, who said, there's nothing America first about taking the word of a KGB colonel over that of the American intelligence community. Trump's defense of Putin and his attack on U.S. intelligence also did not set well with the men who have dedicated their professional lives to serving this country's laws and security. Trump called them political hacks. Former National Intelligence Director James Clapper shot back that Trump, on the other hand, is a danger to U.S. national security. Former CIA chief John Brennan said Trump is being played by Putin, which Brennan says poses a peril to this country. Trump had called former FBI Director James Comey a liar and a leaker. Comey responded with a quote on Twitter that read, If you want truth to go around the world, you must hire an express train to pull it. 
But if you want a lie to go around the world, it will fly, light as a feather, and a breath will carry it. Even Trump's current CIA director, Mike Pompeo, says he believes our unanimous intelligence agency's assessment that Russia tried to interfere with the election. But Pompeo has also downplayed those findings, saying there's no evidence that Russia's meddling had any effect on the outcome of the election. That's the kind of CIA director Trump can support, and Trump then backpedals, saying he agrees with the intelligence agencies under the people who are running them now, under the people who downplay that Russian meddling. Russia's cyber attacks are not limited to our political system. As he and other executives were being grilled by senators last week about shockingly massive data breaches, the interim CEO at Equifax pointed a finger at Russia. Paulino Barros Jr. says the hackers of 143 million people through the Equifax website were acting on behalf of Russia. Also raided this year, Yahoo, for the second time in four years. That breach exposed 3 billion email accounts. As Congress considers laws outlining the proper response to a cyber attack and when to notify customers, Equifax says it's working on an app that would let its users lock and unlock their data. That application should be ready sometime in January. Donald Trump believes that when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, he doesn't really need a State Department, adding, I'm the only one that matters. You've seen that. Indeed, we can see it clearly. The United States has lost more than half of its career ambassadors and a bunch of senior diplomats just since Trump took office. The number of nonpartisan career diplomats is down 60%. There's not even an assistant secretary of state, and Trump has publicly shot down the ideas of the man in the top job at state, Rex Tillerson. Tillerson's goal, or his assignment, is to cut staffing at the State Department by nearly 2,000 people. A hiring freeze is in effect. Vacancies are not being filled at an agency presidents have relied upon to help shape, sell, and enforce the nation's foreign policies. And now to speed things along, the State Department's offering buyouts of up to $25,000 to try to get another 641 employees to leave quietly. A sure way to kill something is to cut off its head. The number of people in the top ranks of the State Department has already been cut in half, and 20% of those who remain say they won't be there long. The U.S. State Department had long been a thorn in the side of Russia's Vladimir Putin. Had been. Was. Past tense. At least for now. Trump began his Asian swing in South Korea, where among other things, warned North Korea against a fatal calculation and praised a U.S. alliance with South Korea that is, quote, forged in war. Then on to Beijing, where Trump promised to make future U.S. trade deals with China that are not one-sided. Trump was careful to praise China for its business savvy and said the fault for the trade deals he calls unfair is not the fault of the Chinese, but the result of foolish practices by previous American presidents calling them grossly incompetent. In his speech in Vietnam, Trump took an even harder stand on trade, vowing the U.S. wouldn't be taken advantage of anymore. But the tough talk apparently fell on deaf ears. Hours later, 11 Pacific Rim countries agreed to a new trade deal among themselves that now excludes the United States. It was a punishment of Trump and the U.S., after Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership earlier this year. 
Mostly, Trump had been well-behaved on the trip and stuck to his scripts, but if it's Sunday, it's another rash of Trump tweets. He ranted again about crooked Hillary and the, quote, haters and fools who want to investigate his ties to Russia. Trump pointed out that he could call North Korea's Kim Jong-un short and fat, but hasn't. Although now he has. Kim, after all, had called Trump a lunatic old man. The same day as Trump's Twitter storm, he arrived in the Philippines to hang with his murderous president, Rodrigo Duterte. On arrival, Duterte, who'd called Obama a son of a bitch, sang Trump a love song. That's not a metaphor. Duterte actually sang an actual love song called You and dedicated it to Trump. The two of them got along very well. Back in April, Trump had called Duterte on the phone to congratulate him on, quote, the unbelievable job on the drug problem. Yeah, Duterte's efforts include the on-the-spot killings of drug suspects, sellers, and users. Thousands have been killed. But he and Trump really hit it off. Should the president and the president alone have the sole authority to launch a nuclear attack? The U.S. Constitution uses an advise-and-consent model for most things in which big decisions are jointly made by the president and Congress together. Until now, the thinking has been that if the U.S. needed to act quickly, there might not be time for advice or consent. Until now, now that Trump is president, now lawmakers are once again asking whether they should be involved in that weighty decision. As it stands, he of the itchy Twitter finger has the nuclear codes, and that concerns many people, including nothing-to-lose Republican Senator Bob Corker. Corker is soon to retire and no fan of his party's president. He's also the head of the very important Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Recently, Chairman Corker publicly said Trump has us, quote, on a path to World War III. Trump's threat of fire and fury like the world has never seen shook Corker as it did many of us. Corker's committee recently heard testimony from the former commander of the U.S. Strategic Command who said he would carry out a presidential order for a nuclear strike. But he says if he had doubts about the legality of such a strike, he would consult his own advisors. Then what happens? asked a committee member. I don't know, said the commander. People laughed, nervously. Corker was asked why he had raised this question of presidential nuclear authority for its first discussion in more than 40 years. This is not specific to anyone, said Corker, even though he'd already made his intentions clear. But Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy felt free to speak. We are concerned, said Murphy, that the president is so unstable, so volatile, he might order a nuclear strike that is wildly out of step with U.S. national security interests. After the break, our own Bob Seska, assault rifle mass killing of the week, a wave of sexual harassment charges, and frat pledges dropping like flies. After this. This free news podcast gets a little commission when you use and get a Target red card through the links at buzzburbank.com. And you get an extra 5% savings in-store and online at Target.com. You'll get fast, free delivery on most items, or you can pick them up at the store. If you like, subscribe to the things you buy regularly and have them arrive on your schedule. With a Target Red Card, you get 60 days to return most items instead of just 30. You save an additional 5% on iTunes gift cards. 
In-store, you can stack your red card savings with coupons and other discounts and save 5% at the in-store Starbucks. Year-round, you'll get early access to new products and early access to each sale, plus a 10% coupon every year on your red card anniversary. There are lots of reasons to get a Target red card through my link, including it helps pay the bills to distribute this podcast. Thank you for clicking and bookmarking the Target links at buzzburbank.com and for supporting this program through all my sponsors or through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Salon.com writer Bob Seska this week is as much concerned about Trump supporters as he is about Trump. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. The disintegration of the Republican Party continues in earnest. While some of the damage is certainly due to reinvigorated attacks from the left, much of the damage is self-inflicted. In fact, I would suggest nearly all of it appears from the outside as a slow-motion political suicide. But naturally, Americans who inexplicably fancy themselves as members of the Personal Responsibility Party don't seem to grasp the reality of their self-imposed annihilation. In a new poll by Winthrop University, around half of all white Southerners said they feel as if they're under attack. According to the poll, 46% of white Southerners say they agree or strongly agree that white people are under attack in the U.S. Aw, poor little snowflakes. Likewise, 30% say they think white European heritage needs to be preserved and 40% want to keep their Confederate monuments. The existence of Donald Trump in the White House is ultimately the consequence of a mass delusion by these people, triggered by the conservative entertainment complex and Russian propaganda. 62 million voters were thoroughly snowed by Trump, a professional scam artist who, along with the aforementioned accomplices, convinced enough people that electing an incompetent reality show villain is the only way to extricate white people from an increasingly enlightened future. They elected a man with a schoolyard bully's brain, stunted and trapped in his preteen years, both temperamentally and intellectually. They elected a man who had no business running in the first place, a man who knows nothing about history, foreign policy, domestic affairs, or generally the real world. Nor is he ever interested in knowing more than whatever he might need to wiggle his way out of a situation, no matter how destructive. The Russian attack, for example, or mundane, a statement about Frederick Douglass. They elected a president who's perfectly comfortable attaching his name to a tweet as ridiculous and childish as this, quote, why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? Oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend and maybe someday that will happen. Unquote. There's another more concise way to phrase this message. I know you are, but what am I? Seriously, how different would this administration be if the president were literally an 11-year-old dilettante? Not much different and possibly a little better, given that children are far less likely than old men to be trapped in their own habits and preconceived notions. These southern white people who think they're under attack won't stop defending Nazis, white supremacists, confederates, traitors, molesters, and pedophiles, either via their defense of Trump's remarks in support of these kinds of people or directly. They're backstopping undisputed villains, and yet they wonder why they're routinely shouted down. They injected into the White House a man who's destabilizing the world, who's unnecessarily provoking a nuclear confrontation with North Korea, who's convinced millions of gomers who require health insurance to also support the repeal 
of their own health insurance and who himself confessed to sexual assault on videotape and who repulsively explained to a 10-year-old girl that he'd be dating her soon. They wrongly celebrated the election, believing that when Trump won, it'd spell the end of feminism, the end of Black Lives Matter, the end of the Obama-era legacy. As we can see by today's headlines, they were wrong. Progress is seldom reversed, and change is a permanent condition of a democratic society. And then, as if none of these facts existed, they're acting like persecuted, whiny diaper babies because the rest of the world is rightfully pushing back against the flailing, uncontrollable madness they've stupidly and impulsively unleashed into the world. So much for personal responsibility. The rest of us can clearly see it. This is what it looks like when the United States doesn't have a true chief executive. Trump is nothing more than a steward of the Oval Office, a placeholder, a real-life Denethor, haunted by his own inadequacies and possessed by dark forces he barely understands, a faker who has utterly failed to live up to the standards of even a below-average president. He's a pretender, a poser, bullshitting his way through daily events, existing in the eternal now without any regard for either history or the future. Indeed, the biggest enemy of the Trump administration is Trump himself, and he's not even self-aware enough to recognize that he routinely undermines his own status, telegraphing his guilt, and routinely highlighting his ignorance in shocking view of the entire world. If white Southerners are sick of feeling persecuted, perhaps they should look inward rather than blaming the rest of us who see this era for the dark ride that it is. Perhaps they should reevaluate their standards, turn off Fox News, and understand that the world is passing them by and nothing can reverse the march of time. But the diehard Trumpers will never see the truth of their misplaced loyalty. They won't change. They'll only be diminished by attrition, and their posterity will have no choice but to absorb and mitigate their shame. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me there every Tuesday. In Northern California, 44-year-old Kevin Neal had been firing guns in his neighborhood for several days. A lot of rounds, said a neighbor, hundreds of rounds, large magazines. The neighbors heard it and were concerned for their own safety. It isn't clear whether they reported it to police. Neil had already attacked two women this year, one of them with a stabbing, the other in a robbery. The women got protective orders. Otherwise, Neil was a free man waiting for his felony trial next year. And then on the morning of Tuesday, November 14th, Kevin Neal picked up two handguns and a semi-automatic rifle. Neil then killed two of his neighbors, stole their vehicle, and headed for a local elementary school, shooting random people along the way. Hearing the approaching gunfire, officials quickly locked down the school and told the kids to get under their desks. When the gunman arrived, he couldn't get into the school, but he fired some 30 shots anyway in a span of about six minutes. He did shoot at classrooms. No children were killed, but two were wounded, one of them twice. The total carnage, six dead and ten wounded. Neil's wife was among the dead, but that wasn't discovered until the next day when police found her body under Neil's floorboards. Although the motive is still not clear, it appears the shooting spree started with the killing of Neil's wife. One of the five people killed was the woman he'd stabbed earlier this year. Kevin Neal knew no one at that elementary school. At that point in his rampage, police say he may have been ready to stage another Sandy Hook massacre. 
Confronted by police, Kevin Jason Neal was himself shot dead. Assault rifles, guns in the hands of people with a history of violence, and another mass shooting. Just back from his Asian trip, Trump tweeted, May God be with the people of Sutherland Springs, Texas. But California was the scene of the latest massacre. The Sutherland Springs mass shooting was nine days earlier. Trump's jet-lagged midnight tweet was condemned as everything from ignorant to insensitive. It can be challenging to keep up. Also in the past week, but getting far less coverage, a quadruple shooting that left two people dead at a big concert in Atlanta. In Fort Lauderdale, a man's been arrested for killing three people, two of them homeless, because the victims, quoting police, were available at the time that he did it. The 22-year-old suspect has confessed and said his goal was to kill five people. He had a license to have a gun. Police say he now qualifies as a serial killer. In the Seminole Heights neighborhood in Tampa, four apparently randomly selected people have been shot to death in what also appears to be the work of a serial killer. The latest victim was found dead in the street. All four killings have taken place within blocks of each other. Quoting the mayor, we will hunt this person down until we find them. Fourteen more lawsuits have now been filed in the aftermath of the Las Vegas mass shooting. In addition to the concert organizers, the victims and survivors are suing the company that made the bump stock that made possible so many killings in such a short time. Nine of the family's surviving victims of the Sandy Hook massacre are asking the Connecticut Supreme Court to reconsider their lawsuit against the manufacturer of the AR-15 used in that mass killing. The gun was made by Bushmaster, which is owned by Remington. The survivor's lawsuit had already been rejected, but they're back, arguing that Remington marketed the gun, quote, not for sport or target or self-defense. The gun was advertised with photos of soldiers in combat. The ad said the AR-15 would restore your man card. The guns were banned in 2004, but the ban ran out 10 years later with a push from the NRA. And a new study finds a correlation between relaxed concealed carry laws and higher murder rates. Researchers at Boston University studied that relationship using data from all 50 states collected over the past 25 years. All 50 states have concealed carry, but some states are less careful than others when deciding who gets a concealed permit. And in a dozen states, you don't even need a permit. With a push from the NRA... The Republican Congress is looking at letting people with concealed carry permits use the rules from their state, even when they're in states where the standards are more strict. Most Americans are opposed to guns being carried in public in the first place, and this new study shows a likely link between lenient concealed carry laws and higher murder rates. The end of tolerance for sexual harassment has reached into all levels of government, all the way to Washington. House Speaker Paul Ryan announced this week that all House members and staff are now required to undergo anti-harassment and anti-discrimination training. Two female representatives, one Democrat, one Republican, came forward with stories about harassment in the House, stories of staffers being grabbed or seeing their bosses expose themselves and being asked, are you going to be a good girl? Congresswoman Jackie Spire announced that two current members of Congress had themselves engaged in sexual harassment. She didn't name names. And it's not just in Washington. State capitals from Florida to California have been rocked by harassment scandals. Some states, including California, are imposing stricter rules and launching investigations. 
lawmakers have been removed or they've resigned because of these scandals. The harassment, of course, has been there all along. But across the country, it's no longer being tolerated. Celebrity harassment scandals have had a lot to do with that. A fifth woman, by the way, has come forward to accuse former President George H. Bush of touching her inappropriately. It happened at another photo shoot, what's been explained as the ex-president's little joke to put people at ease, or at least put himself at ease. It seems to happen even with former First Lady Barbara Bush standing beside him. The latest accuser, who was 16 when that photo was taken, says the senior Bush put his arm around her, then dropped his hand to her buttocks and gave a little squeeze. After at least five accusers, a spokesman for the aged former president says Mr. Bush has apologized to, quote, anyone he may have offended during a photo op. In Los Angeles, the district attorney has set up a task force to investigate sex abuse claims in the entertainment industry. The DA's office is awash now in complaints since the Weinstein and Spacey stories broke last month. A few of the complaints have come from men. Actor Terry Crews filed a police report against a powerful Hollywood agent who allegedly groped Crews at a party with Crews' wife at his side. Crews rounded up others who'd had a similar experience with that agent before filing his police report. Actor Corey Feldman has filed a complaint about two men he says abused him when he was a child actor in the 1980s. Since my last report, we have witnessed the end of a powerful career for comedian Louis C.K. He now joins the rank of Bill Cosby and so many more. Accusations have been leveled against Steven Seagal by both Jenny McCarthy and Portia de Rossi. De Rossi says the action star unzipped his leather pants at a private audition, telling her chemistry is important. McCarthy says Seagal asked her to expose her breasts. She left, telling him to buy her Playboy video. Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner has been accused by a writer for that show. She says Weiner told her she owed it to him to let him see her naked. She refused and was let go within a year, whereupon she quit the entertainment industry altogether. Star Trek icon George Takai is flatly denying a claim that he groped an unconscious male model in 1981. Denials also to accusations leveled at Jeffrey Tambor and Charlie Sheen. Sheen was accused of assaulting Corey Feldman's friend Corey Haim on the set of the 1986 movie Lucas. Sheen was 19 then, Haim was 13. Tambor, who plays a transgender in his show Transparent, was the target of a complaint by his former assistant, who is transgender in real life. Tambor calls her a disgruntled former employee and vehemently denies the charges. An investigation is underway. Also facing allegations, the executive producer of the TV shows Arrow, Supergirl, and The Flash. Olympic gymnastics gold medalist Allie Reisman says she was sexually abused by the USA's team doctor. That same doctor, Larry Nasser, has also been accused by more than 130 other women. And this isn't over yet. The harassment, of course, has been there all along. But across the country, it's no longer being tolerated. Fraternities and sororities at Texas State University have been suspended after the alcohol-induced death of a frat pledge at a Big Greek Life event. A week ago, Florida State University suspended all Greek activity indefinitely. That school's president says he wanted to send a serious message to sororities and fraternities after a pledge died there and a frat member was busted for selling cocaine. The 18-year-old pledge who died in September at Louisiana State University had, we now know, six times the legal limit of booze in his blood. 
That happened during a ritual called Bible study, in which pledges are forced to drink for every wrong answer about the frat's history. Ten people have been arrested in connection with that death. And in February, of course, the alcohol death of a 19-year-old sophomore. This week, the list of those charged expanded to 17 with the recovery of a security video that had been deleted by a fraternity member once the pledge had died from alcohol overdose. The video shows the victim being pushed to down 18 drinks in an hour and 22 minutes. The video was deleted while police investigating the death were in the house. A man brought to the U.S. as a boy and the first of the dreamers to be deported by the Trump administration is now behind bars after sneaking back into this country. 23-year-old Juan Manuel Montez was busted last week as he crossed the Mexican border near Calexico, California. He now faces a federal felony that could get him two years in prison. Montez's lawyers say he was deported on February 19th. The U.S. Border Patrol says it has no record of that. We also learned this week that Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly, pressured the acting Homeland Security Secretary to expel tens of thousands of Hondurans living in the U.S. The call came just as Homeland Security was preparing to extend residency permits for those Hondurans, which it did, despite interference from the Trump White House. Eleven cities, meanwhile, have jointly agreed to guarantee lawyers for undocumented immigrants who are facing deportation. The network includes Atlanta, Austin, Baltimore, Chicago, Columbus, Oakland, Sacramento, San Antonio, and Santa Ana, California, along with a suburban area outside Washington, D.C., and a county in central Wisconsin. Each location will receive a large grant from the Vera Institute of Justice to pay for those lawyers. For three years, we have held the line on climate-changing carbon emissions, there was no worldwide increase in 2014, 2015, or 2016. It appeared the next move would be downward. And then came 2017, which is on track for an increase in the amount of carbon dioxide we spew into the air. When we should be headed the other way, carbon emissions were up by 2%. Emissions were actually down by a half percent in the U.S. and down a quarter percent in Europe. But China has increased its use of coal and its emissions are up by 3.5%. Quoting a researcher at a British university's climate change research group, this is very disappointing. Former Vice President Joe Biden has not only not ruled out running for president in 2020, he now says it's possible. On the Today Show, Biden said, I'm not closing the door, but who knows what the situation is going to be a year and a half from now. Biden launched his own political action committee in early spring of this year. Biden appears to regret not running in 2016, a decision made partly because of the death of his son, Beau, to brain cancer. Biden was on today to promote his new book about that experience and his decision not to run. We recently learned that former Democratic National Committee Chair Donna Brazile considered floating Biden as a replacement when Brazile heard that Hillary Clinton had fainted on the campaign trail. About that, Biden says he would have never accepted taking the place of the candidate the party had already nominated. Could Biden have beaten Trump? He thinks so. The polling data at the time, says Biden, said yes. Here's an update on Senator Rand Paul's injurious encounter with his next-door neighbor. Paul reports that six of his ribs were broken, not four or five, and that fluid 
had begun to build up between his lungs and his chest. And next-door neighbor Rene Boucher has entered a plea of not guilty for the fourth-degree assault charges he's facing. At fourth degree, it's a misdemeanor. Still, it could mean as much as a year in jail and a $500 fine. And the FBI is reportedly still investigating this alleged attack on a sitting United States senator. Does this mean Paul's neighbor may face federal charges? Quoting the neighbor's lawyer, I hope that doesn't happen. Rand Paul returned to work this week despite being in considerable pain. Should a Christian anti-abortion pregnancy counseling center be required to post a notice informing women that abortion is an option? California law requires it. It also requires the counseling centers that are not licensed to make it clear in their advertising that they are not licensed. These anti-abortion counseling centers say this California law violates their First Amendment right to free speech. And now the United States Supreme Court will take up that question. The court now leans heavily to the right after the seating of Trump's choice of Neil Gorsuch. Trump's administration has already appointed more appeals court judges than any president this early in a term since Richard Nixon. Trump has made it clear all along, especially lately, how little respect he has for the American justice system, civilian and military. The Washington Post reports the Trump administration has been targeting the judicial branch of government since a once-secret meeting just weeks before Trump took office. Lawyers called in by soon-to-be White House counsel Don McGahn gathered to select young, super-conservative judges to fill for life every possible vacancy. Trump has filled eight judgeships so far, and a ninth is sailing through the Senate process now. Many of the vacancies were intentionally left vacant by a Republican Senate that refused to confirm Obama's nominees during his last two years in office. Quoting Trump, We will set records in terms of the number of judges. There has never been anything like what we've been able to do with judges. Some of Trump's nominees are being confirmed even before the vetting process is finished. Democrats say Trump's choosing extremists. Observers say Trump's plan threatens to deadlock the judicial system in much the same way Congress is now deadlocked. If the judge nods off during your murder trial, that's okay, according to an Illinois appeals court. The court has made that ruling, even though a judge appeared to fall asleep in a darkened courtroom as the accused man's lawyer played a video into evidence. This happened three years ago, just before Nicholas Sheely was convicted of murder. The judge denied he'd slept through part of the evidence. He said his eyes may have been closed, but that he was still listening. Now an Illinois appeals court has sided with the judge, despite a study last year that shows sleep-deprived judges hand out longer sentences than judges who get plenty of shut-eye off the clock. Justice may be blind, but it is supposed to stay awake. A trip to Future Town, a Florida man and his pet squirrel, and somebody finally makes Thanksgiving pants. In the third and final segment, up next. Autumn is the perfect time to bring life and color into your home. Embrace the season with everything from fall colors to pumpkin spice. So it's a perfect time to go to proflowers.com and check out their best-selling cinnamon cider roses, a long-lasting bouquet that's perfect for any occasion this fall. Or check out their 100 autumn blooms or even a dozen of their autumn roses. And if you choose any one of those items for $29 or more, Pro Flowers will take 20% off the price just because you heard about it here. 
The fall bouquet they sent here is absolutely breathtaking. Remember, Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. And as always, you pick the delivery date. Pro Flowers gives you more bloom for your buck, big, beautiful flowers with long, healthy stems. Again, get 20% off all bouquets of $29 or more when you go to proflowers.com and use our code REALM at checkout. That's R-E-L-M in the discount code box when you check out at proflowers.com. Thanks for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. There's now a nearly 50-50 chance you have high blood pressure and not necessarily because of the rest of the news. New guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology lower the threshold for normal blood pressure. That change pushes tens of millions of Americans into the high blood pressure group. It means tens of millions more of us will have to eat less salt, exercise more, and drop the bad habits to try to avoid a heart attack or stroke. Anyone with a top number of 130 or higher now has hypertension. The number had been 140. The number of men under age 45 in the high range will now triple. Besides doctor's orders for lifestyle changes, there will also be more blood pressure prescriptions written. Well over 4 million more people will be getting those prescriptions. Making restaurants post calories on their menus shows real promise in fighting the obesity epidemic. People careful about the foods they serve at home have relied on fast food slingers and restaurants to look after them when they're out. And we have now seen just how calorie-packed some of those items can be. A study by researchers at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, found that making restaurants post the calories prompted those restaurants to cut an average of 15 calories from every item, perhaps out of embarrassment. And, of course, customers, especially women, started modifying their orders to do some calorie cutting of their own. On average, they managed to cut 60 more calories from every meal. That brings the calorie cut to 83 per meal. So between the restaurant cutbacks, the customer cutbacks, posting those calories publicly becomes a proven tool in the battle against blubber. Among all their other hang-ups... Men, many of them, are reluctant to perform CPR chest compressions on a woman in public. The result? Women suffering heart attacks in public places are less likely than men to get that life-saving CPR and therefore more likely to die. Many men are, even in that situation, reluctant to put their hands between the breasts of a woman in public. We're not worrying about what seems socially inappropriate. A life is on the line says the head of the Resuscitation Science Unit at the University of Pennsylvania. To hesitate is to fail since cardiac arrest can kill a person in just minutes without CPR. CPR triples the chance of survival. Men who have heart attacks in public have a 23% greater chance of getting CPR. Google CPR until you have it memorized. Call 911. No need to open or remove the patient's clothing. Begin those compressions, one of your hands over the other on the center of the chest. Press quickly and rhythmically. Playing in your head the Bee Gees song, Stayin' Alive, will give you the right beat. And don't worry about being sued. All 50 states have good Samaritan laws to protect you. And remember, women have heart attacks too and need the same rapid treatment as men. One of the country's biggest grocery chains, Publix, 
gets a lot of its dairy products from the Larson Dairy Farm in Okeechobee, Florida. Attention shoppers. That dairy farm is now under criminal investigation after an undercover video showed employees beating cows with steel rods, kicking and stabbing them. The video was shot for the group Animal Recovery Mission, which says the beatings took place three times a day between milkings for 305 days a year. The video showed calves lying in their own feces in small cages and a pile of dead calves along one wall. The county sheriff says there will be arrests, but since the sheriff is a friend of the farm's owners, he says those owners would never condone the beatings. And the owner says one of the employees seen in the video has been fired. The owner calls that abuse unusual and unacceptable. An Uber driver cannot negotiate with passengers. Uber offers up the customers and sets the prices. In other terms, the driver has no say. Therefore, rules a British court, Uber drivers are employees eligible for benefits, including minimum wage and holiday pay. Uber has considered its drivers self-employed. But as a British court ruled in July, the notion that Uber in London is a mosaic of 30,000 small businesses linked by a common platform is, to our minds, faintly ridiculous. Uber has now been ordered to pay Britain's national minimum wage. Uber is apparently willing to take its case all the way to Britain's Supreme Court as it fights this. Welcome to Future Town, Arizona, or perhaps it'll keep the name Belmont. It's between Phoenix and Las Vegas, and it'll soon be located along a new interstate highway that connects Sun City with Sin City. It'll be within commuting distance of both towns. Microsoft billionaire Bill Gates, through his investment group, has just purchased nearly 25,000 acres in a development called Belmont. Gates plans to turn his patch of desert into a city of the future with cutting-edge infrastructure, high-speed digital networks, self-driving cars, and more. It would have 80,000 residential units, thousands of acres for stores, offices, and other businesses, along with nearly 500 acres for schools. How far in the future? They expect the first phase of construction to be finished by sometime next year. Future Town. Gates is also investing $50 million into a search for a cure for Alzheimer's. It's the first time the Gates Foundation has invested in a cure for a non-communicable disease. But this one affects 47 million people worldwide. It's the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., Alzheimer's. Discovered 100 years ago, American billionaire Bill Gates is pushing for a cure. Speaking of brain diseases, we've finally seen the results of the brain autopsy of former NFL star and convicted killer Aaron Hernandez. Hernandez was 27 when he hanged himself in prison. The initial autopsy showed he had stage 4 CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. His brain was examined by the same doctors who studied the brains of 100 former NFL players. Quoting one, this is the first case we've seen of that kind of damage in such a young individual. Doctors cannot prove a connection between CTE and Hernandez's violence, but, but they say the part of the brain affected by CTE includes areas that handle judgment and emotion. Hernandez's family is suing the NFL now, alleging it knew about and covered up the dangers of head trauma. CTE has now been found in the brains of 110 out of 111 former NFL players. Thor hammered out a second week as the most popular movie in theaters with another 57 million this week. Daddy's Home was second with 30 million, 
And with Murder on the Orient Express in third place with $28 million, that's three movies, each making over $20 million in one weekend as people finally return to the theaters. Passings and Passages John Hillerman died this past week at the age of 84. The mustachioed Hillerman was best known for his role as Higgins on TV's Magnum P.I. after converting his Texas accent to something more similar to British. He also had roles on One Day at a Time, Murder, She Wrote, and The Love Boat. John Hillerman movie credits include The Last Picture Show, Paper Moon, and Blazing Saddles. And prison authorities in California say Charles Manson has been moved to a hospital in Bakersfield because he is now in grave condition. Following up as promised, here are the latest inductees in the Toy Hall of Fame. The board game Clue, the Wiffle Ball, and the Paper Airplane were this year's winners, announced at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, over the weekend. This year's nominees also included Matchbox Cars, the Magic 8-Ball, My Little Pony, the Pez Dispenser, and Transformers, along with the board game Risk and the card game Uno. The 2017 inductee Clue was invented by a British couple during World War II for a dinner party murder mystery. The Wiffle Ball was invented by a retired semi-pro baseball player who wanted his son to play in the backyard without breaking any windows. Paper airplanes, on the other hand, were either invented by Leonardo da Vinci or by the Chinese more than 2,000 years ago. An update now on the 45-foot nude woman statue that won't be going up near the Washington Monument. That statue, which stood for a couple of years at the site of the annual Burning Man Festival, was to have stood on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. as a plea for the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment for Women. After some miscommunication, the statue plan was scrapped, but there has since been a bit of a compromise. The National Park Service did allow organizers to put up a 30-foot-high silkscreen silhouette of a nude woman upon which women's faces will be projected. Also there, a Burning Man display called Catharsis on the Mall in a bid to bring Burning Man values to the nation's capital, which include better recognizing our inner selves in the context of reality. We wish them the best of luck. Near Richmond, Virginia, a middle school teacher did the wrong thing. The teacher had downloaded from the Internet a family quiz, which might seem appropriate for a family and consumer sciences class, except that it wasn't part of the approved curriculum. And the teacher apparently didn't see the disclaimer on that quiz that advised it may not be appropriate for younger students. The test began innocently enough with the usual questions about the structure of a family, but toward the end of the test were questions about marital infidelity using terms like boy toy. Quoting one outraged parent, no one in the school system needs to be teaching my daughter what a mistress is or a trophy wife or a boy toy. The angry mother continued, we send our kids there to learn math, reading, science, and history, not to learn this other stuff that goes on in the world that they're eventually going to learn anyways. From the home office in Florida, Ryan Boylan is very fond of his pet squirrel. Ryan's condo association is not. Last month, the Island Walk Condominium Owners Association sent Ryan a letter ordering him to ditch the squirrel or move out. Ryan has preemptively tried to prevent both options by registering his squirrel as an emotional support animal. Clearly, we need to back up here and take a closer look. 
At first, there was no trouble. Ryan had found the squirrel huddled under a car after Hurricane Matthew last year. They became fast and close friends. Ever since then, I mean, oh my God, says Ryan, I can't imagine not being around her. Ryan says he named the squirrel Brutus before he found out it's a girl squirrel. She's just like an inside cat, says Ryan. She just walks around and hides pecans and hazelnuts, which are her two favorites. Anyway, things were fine until one day, while out looking for food, Brutus got treed by a dog. The barking got the attention of the Condo Owners Association, which began checking its records. In the meantime, Ryan got to work contacting RegisterMyServiceAnimal.com and got a note from his doctor stating that Ryan has PTSD from an auto accident. The association esteemed that Ryan never told it he had a pet, much less a squirrel, and that he didn't register it as a service animal until July, a full three months after that dog chased Brutus up a tree. Now, however, the Office of Human Rights has gotten involved, reminding the Homeowners Association that support animals are protected under the Fair Housing Act. So now it's the Condo Association that's up a tree. A couple of holiday stories as we approach Thanksgiving. As I believe it does every year, the police department in St. Mary's, Pennsylvania, has pretty much stopped writing tickets for the year. Instead, for minor infractions, it's handing the stopped driver a one-page flyer that urges them to donate an unwrapped toy at police headquarters for needy kids over the holidays. The letterhead document, adorned with pine sprigs, holly leaves, candy canes, and gold stars, tells the driver what they did wrong and that their citation has been waived. St. Mary's police say you can also drop off a toy if you haven't been stopped by police. The makers of stovetop stuffing are also selling pants. For 20 bucks, Kraft Heinz will send you a pair of Thanksgiving dinner pants using, no kidding, NASA technology. The extra wide waistband is guaranteed to stretch up to twice its normal size. Place next obesity report here. And finally, take some comfort in this. For all the damage it's done, Russian propaganda may be overrated. The Russian Defense Ministry posted photos a couple of weeks ago. It said we're evidence the U.S. is helping ISIS in Syria. The U.S. has now responded with photos showing that these new Russian photos are actually just still frames from a 2015 video game. AC-130 Gunship Simulator Special Ops Squadron, to be specific. Quoting a spokesman for Vladimir Putin, Mistakes happen. I'm Buzz Burbank. Happy Thanksgiving. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back in two weeks with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.